Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. News, views, and counter-apologetics for people who won't just take things on faith. I'm Jeremy Bean. Here are my friends in the studio, David Fletcher. What's up? And Luke Galen. Hi. Let's start off with a little bit of news. Some good news for once. The religious right seems to be in retreat nowadays. Gone are the days of the 2004 election where value voters, as they like to call themselves, were convinced that they were the ones who held the keys to political power in the United States. Now with this new election coming up, many of religious right voters are very torn politically on which Republican candidates to endorse. They're not getting as much support as they used to, and they don't know who reflects their values. Some of this information about our candidates comes from pbs.org Religion and Ethics Weekly, uh, an article called Evangelical Indecision. PBS, the liberal media strikes again. Tim O'Brien begins the article saying, uh, as the race for the White House moves forward, religion is playing a prominent role in the campaign. Evangelicals have become a key part of the winning coalition for Republicans. They represent 40% of George W. Bush's total vote in 2004, but so far in this campaign season, evangelicals haven't united behind any of the presidential candidates. When it comes to picking a candidate in the 2008 election, many are still seeking divine guidance. Maybe they should read Barack Obama's book and they would get inspired by his, <laughs> by his divine guidance that he received. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the interesting part of this story to me is that it's a story because uh, evangelicals are thinking for themselves. <laughs> like they're not all getting behind one guy and saying, all right, this is, this is the candidate we support. No, there, there's actually division amongst the ranks because people are actually considering for themselves who it is that they'd like to follow. It can be much harder to uh, elect someone with the fundamentalist minority the way that, that George W. Bush was elected. Well, if, if that's the case, then will we see all this indecision vanish once the Republican Party picks the candidate that they are going to run with? I, I suspect that's going to be the case because, like you said, they're, they're questioning which Republican it is that most reflects their values. There's no debate over maybe they should go green this year. Like, that's not <laughs> going to happen. They're going to vote for the Republican nominee. And if it's Giuliani, uh, which it looks like it might be, I think that's just going to force him further to the right. So apparently they have a problem with Rudy Giuliani, too, um, which, uh, of course, you should if you're at all paying attention. Um, but many religious conservatives, it says, uh, says Kim Lawton, again, from the PBS.org Religion and Ethics Weekly. Many religious conservatives are reluctant to support Republican frontrunner Rudy Giuliani because his stands in favor of abortion rights and gay rights. Although some evangelical leaders have endorsed the former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, others in the community are finding it difficult to support him because of his Mormon faith. Former Tennessee Senator Fred Thompson has some evangelical report, uh, support, but he disappointed many with his recent admission that he does not regularly attend church. Oh, no. <laughs> Even though he said he is right with God... Well, if you're right with God, then you should be attending church, right? 
none of those uh, none of these three attended the voters the value voters debate last month supported by several conservative pro-family groups did any of you guys read anything about that values voters conference yep now Giuliani was plugging hard for support there he was trying to he didn't shift any of his he didn't apologize for his positions on pro-choice or gun control but he said you know rather that basically his message was rather than me lying to you and trying to you know, seem as if I'm something I'm not. I'm being honest with you, and I think that you will appreciate that. And mm-hmm. a lot, you know, some of the some of the crowd appeared to be, uh, you know, appreciative of his honesty. But I saw a video clip, and and they were pretty self righteous about themselves at the values vote. Well, I mean, well, not surprising, right? But uh, they had one of their spokesmen get up on the stage and uh, and go off on how well these people who snubbed us today they're they're not going to have any chance because we're not going to support them. We're not going to follow their lead. I think she said. But and there's no religious test in this country for public office. I want to point that out once again. Well, there is amongst the voters. And um, Mike Huckabee, Republican presidential candidate, says, uh, if it's real faith, it's a part of our lives. We should be comfortable talking about it, just like I'd be comfortable talking about my allegiance to the Arkansas Razorback football team. That's not difficult for me. Why should religion be so difficult for me to talk about? Kind of uh, miss those days back when John F. Kennedy had to get up in front of uh, in front of the nation and make it absolutely clear that although he was a religious man and, and spiritual, that he wasn't going to let that get in the way of how he uh, executed his office as president of the United States. The times you won't they hear are changing. Rhetoric like that anymore. That's for sure. Some of the Democratic pundits are op- are optimistic because each candidate will, uh, rather than maybe provoking opposition, will just have results in a portion of the Republican voters that don't turn out. So those people who can't stand pro-choice will not vote. Will just stay home rather than arguing a lot about Giuliani. Or those people who are anti-Mormon will just stay home if Mitt Romney is elected or things like that. So the the um, the electorate will probably. Um, it will suppress proportional turnout depending on who despises that aspect of the candidate the most. Which, and and without having something like the gay marriage ban, and it's early, they may come up with with something like that to get the fundamentalist voters out to the polls like they did last time, uh, which really stemmed the tide because people, even if they didn't care about the presidential election, they sure cared that those gays not get married. But I kind of also feel like if, if Hillary Clinton <laughs> is exactly the Democratic nominee, say. they're going to come out yeah. just to not vote for yeah. her. The Democrats could still, uh, <laughs> what, what, what did I hear somebody say, snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory yeah, <laughs> absolutely. on this one yet? If they choose to pick Hillary Clinton as their, as their nominee, that would mobilize any disenfranchised fundamentalists. We need voters. Pat Buchanan to run so that he can get their vote and distract <laughs> everyone else, and then. Or who's the guy, Mike Huckabee? Mike Huckabee. Although there's there's some questions <clears throat> about him, and I'm, he's a former pastor and now politician. As governor of Arkansas, he instituted the covenant marriage, where you can have a marriage, super marriage, where you can't you can't get out of it as easily as just a standard marriage. So a covenant marriage. This is his policy: is that people can get the, the divorce rate is actually highest in some of the Bible Belt states, Arkansas right. being Absolutely. right up there with, 
you know, with some of the, uh, as I think it's, you know, in the top five. So, so Huckabee's idea was to have a covenant marriage, which would, I'm not exactly sure, and all the legal entanglements, which would prevent it from somebody getting out of it as easily as the gist of it. <laughs> nice. So, so instead of trying to improve marriages, you just tighten the restrictions on bailing out of them. It's just the, like the good old days and <laughs> where, you know, where people were trapped in marriages. Apparently that's more moral than being able just to cut and run. So yes, when it was purely a, uh, a social contract and for economic reasons. That's, that's the true heart of marriage, and I think we need to, to go back to that. Well, so what's interesting about the candidates, too, is that you get these debates between, amongst Christians between the, the anti-Mormon people who criticize Mitt Romney because of the church's views on some of the more exotic Mormon beliefs. Right. And then you have, you know, actually Christian people doing... Uh, using utilizing arguments against him that are usually employed against Christians. Uh, you know, was the Garden of Eden in Missouri, as the Latter Day Saints believe? That's absurd. It's ridiculous. Was Jesus? You know, did he come to North America? And was the Native Americans are descended from the ancient Israelite tribe? It's ridiculous. Which is quite amusing, obviously, to people like us. Oh, I've heard the same thing from uh, from relatives of mine who are are very fundamentalist and evangelical, talking about how ridiculous. Mormonism is just look at their text. They translate uh, verbatim passages of King James English that were (laughs) supposedly uh, written in Egyptian hieroglyphics. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. So apparently you've studied a lot about Hebrew and Aramaic in the Hebrew Bible, and you are are aware of some of the ridiculous things like domesticated camels that are supposed to be existing back in the day of Abraham and these other things. It's the... It, it's well, funny. Uh, the words pot and kettle come to mind. So. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yep. Moving on, we have some more uh, news topics today to talk about. Uh, this particular one deals with homosexuality and intolerance. No. What's going on is that there recently was a bill that was passed by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in California... The bill is SB 777. It would have been great if it was SB 666, probably. <laughs> One more. <laughs> uh, but it, it prohibits any instruction or school-sponsored activity that is perceived to promote a discriminatory bias against gender. And the bill specifically defines gender uh, as being related to things outside of just biology. Uh, so it's meant to be inclusive of transsexual people. The bill also guarantees protections for people's sexual orientation. It's basically just an extension of laws that already exist in the California Penal Code, but they are using it to apply to public education. Many conservative Christians are absolutely outraged. Here's the way they're portraying it. This is from Christian Newswire, which, by the way, if you ever want to... Remind yourself of how deluded humanity can be. Go check out Christian Newswire. It's, it's full of good stuff. Actually, I was on there this morning, and the Christian Newswire is now reporting that the wildfires in California are a direct result of God's anger at this bill. <laughs> yeah, that's good reporting there. That's, yeah. that's principled. How did they explain uh, Tornado Alley in the middle of the Bible Belt? And, <laughs> and how did the fires miss uh, San they Francisco? They for Huckabee. Shouldn't God strike Amsterdam? Her. Take care <laughs> of it right at the source? Here are some Christian interpretations of this particular bill. Hmm. 
This is from World Congress of Families Global Coordinator Alan Carlson. Carlson believes that this bill will, in his words, prohibit anything that suggests that an, that the natural family, a man and a woman married with children, <laughs> is normal or typical. Continuing the quote. Thus, under this latest advance towards the brave new world of polymorphous perversion, California oh. textbooks will no longer be able to use words like mother and father and husband and wife because they suggest that heterosexuality is the norm, even in California. Godless California. <laughs> Isn't that where Ronald Reagan's from? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as it turns out, Jeremy, you and I are both in unnatural marriages because because we don't have children. We don't have children and frankly everything about Luke's life is unnatural. <laughs> well, so yeah, yeah. Just so our listeners don't get it confused, David and I aren't married. We both I have you meant to each other that not, you're married. Yeah, not not that yeah, not to each other are we married, but we uh, <laughs> but we both have lovely wives. Still an abomination, though. So right. you know, right. isn't the traditional family really a polygamous family from the on the basis yeah. of scripture? Good we have point. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, not Sammy, but his wife. Then. Where's oh, this yes. one one man, one woman with children? I don't know. Well, but don't vote for Mitt Romney because because he's because he's he doesn't support our values. That's right. Wow. They go on to say that this is Randy Thompson, president of the Campaign for Children and Families. He says, Arnold Schwarzenegger has delivered young children into the hands of those who will introduce them to alternative lifestyles. This means children as young as five years old will be mentally molested in school classrooms. Shame on Schwarzenegger and the Democratic politicians for ensuring that every California school becomes a homosexual, bisexual, transsexual indoctrination center. My favorite thing about groups like this is that clearly the bigots have have made a major leap forward in that they've learned how to label themselves correctly. I mean, oh, yeah. Ku Klux Klan, that just sounds scary. Of course. But the campaign family. for children and families, we're not we're not trying to stop anyone. We're just trying to protect our children from the gays. So my question is based on his uh, labeling there then a single parent family would also be viewed as non-optimal. So I'm wondering why they don't make a bigger deal out of taking those you know. Probably because they've taken enough of a hit in the media. No, if for you're going to be intellectually honest, you should say <laughs> if the man and a woman and 2.5 kids, that's the norm that we should go in. Anything that's not that is right. deviant, then then that means that single parents are... Well, hatred towards homosexuality uh, trumps all. <laughs> I've actually read this bill, SB 777. You can get it on the internet, and we will have a link to it on our site. There's nothing in this that even begins to imply all these things that they're saying. I don't know where they're finding this. It, there were a couple of reports, allegedly, in one of these Christian Newswire articles that were talking about how one of the people who introduced the bill herself removed the language that supposedly would forbid mother and father, husband and wife being used. But they didn't cite their source, and I wasn't able to find anything like mm. it. So a lot of this seems to be going around that's just completely unsubstantiated. Now, isn't there a claim here that, that it would infringe on their religious speech to condemn homosexuality mm. by preventing that? So if you quoted the Bible, for example, saying that, you know, you should whatever stone homosexuals, that that would be, the bill would label that as hate speech, and then they wouldn't be able to 
talk in a religious way then? Isn't that their claim? That I think I've heard that before. It's not, you know, this is not banning private citizens from saying anything well, that they right. want. It's making sure that school officials and administrators and teachers and curriculum mm-hmm. doesn't reflect anti, anti-bias. Right. And it's not even forcing uh, right. teaching of transgender. Right. They're not saying teachers have to say, by the way, you think you're a boy, but maybe you're not really. They're just acknowledging that they exist and saying that you cannot discriminate against homosexuals, bisexuals, and and transsexuals in the curriculum. They're trying to keep their students safe from uh, feeling excluded, from feeling like they're being preached at. But yeah, some of these particular anti-gay groups... are interpreting this as a positive move. It's it's not just defending these people. It's actually proactively promoting a homosexual right. la- lifestyle. Here's a here's a list of some of the things that they say could be eliminated from California public schools because they are deemed to have a discriminatory bias. Textbooks and other instruction that portray marriage as only between a man and a woman. Textbooks and other instruction that say that people are born male or female. So apparently we're going to have to... And not in between (laughs) is what they say. And not in between. I don't know that that's that's the way transsexuals would describe themselves. Yeah, that's interesting that they add that and not in between. So apparently Mm -hmm. they don't believe in hermaphrodites. Hermaphrodites. That must be... That must represent a, quite a threat to them to know that somebody could, be, could that God could, cre- if God doesn't create junk, that he could create a hermaphrodite, uh, <laughs> you know, that's in, of intersex type condition. Uh, it's our sin nature, I'm sure. Mm. Textbooks and other instruction that leave out transsexual, bisexual, or homosexual historical figures. Uh, here's another one. Homecoming king and queen contests that allow only boys to run for king and only girls to run for queen. Sex education and school assemblies that omit the option of hormone injections for sex changes. So apparently now every every sex ed assembly is going to have to have to talk about how you can get a sex change if you want. Well, luckily, they, you can have a sex change, but you can't have sex because <laughs> abstinence only. Right, right. So... Well, here's the here's the cream of the crop here. This is what really did it for me. They're afraid that this legislation could potentially lead to the banning of boys and girls separate bathrooms based on uh, biological gender. So that that's what they're all afraid of. And all of this comes from one particular phrase. The language used to say that you could not have language that would reflect adversely on the homosexual community. But this one says you can't have any behavior or language that promotes a discriminatory bias. Now, their entire case for why these absurd things they fear will follow, their, their logic in this is that since there are currently no textbooks that are being used that do promote a negative view of transsexuals, homosexuals, and everything else, Mm -hmm. then this is unnecessary legislation. So the true motivation is not just to secure protection. The true motivation must be that they're going to require schools to show that they have positively made strides to promote a homosexual lifestyle. Even though nothing in that bill says that's the case, I can't find any advocates pushing for it on this on on that ground. So basically an argument from absence and 
suddenly all these all these right. conclusions are supposed Next to follow. Next thing you know, those damn Californians are going to be allowing textbooks that say that African Americans and women contributed to society. Let's <laughs> not uh, yeah. wow. go over the cliff here. Ooh. Well, one final note before we leave this, this story. Uh, Alan Carlson, again, from World Congress of Families, she, uh, sorry, he, Ooh, maybe in between. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to judge the man. I'm mm. going to. What am I? We're going to impose gender roles. On <laughs> Alan Carlson observed that California parents, and this is a, his quote: "California parents who don't want to see their children subjected to gender indoctrination will now have no alternative but to withdraw from the public education system, which they will be required to fund nonetheless." So the key to this is if you can't stand your children being put into a context where they're taught to be tolerant, where they're required to be tolerant is actually a better way of putting it, Mm -hmm. then just pull them out of the public schools. Because, of course, as I forgot to mention, all the religious schools are exempt from these laws. They can do whatever they want. Well, clearly what's, what's going on with that is that they see that the, the poll, all poll data indicate that people are becoming more and more, as cohorts age, the younger cohorts are increasingly tolerant of homosexuals. And most often it's because they're, they know them personally or are put in a context right. where they have to be with them. So, you know, uh, from the Christian standpoint, if you, uh, if you don't want that to happen, the best thing to do is to prevent any discussion which normalizes that. Uh, they can see that the data are not trending in their favor. Some of the debate around this centered around more political issues dealing with free speech because these laws are similar to hate crime laws that are being passed around the country. Is a hate crime something that is somehow more worthy of scorn or punishment than a normal crime? I was kind of curious what you guys thought about that. I want to introduce a particular story here. This story is from the U.K., and it would at least seem to support uh, or add just a little bit of legitimacy to some of their concerns. This is from religionnewsblog.com. There's a couple uh, who are foster care parents. They've been doing this for several years, and they've cared for almost 30 children in the foster care system in Great Britain. And they are having their 11-year-old boy removed from their care because the social services department is implementing the new Labor Party's sexual orientation regulations. It's from their Equality Act of 2006, which makes discrimination on the grounds of sexuality illegal. But according to this article, it does have a positive component. They are to positively instruct the children that have been trusted to their charge that you should not discriminate against homosexuals, that you should not discriminate on the basis of sexuality. And they, they have to prove that they've jumped through certain hoops to prove that they have actually done that. Here's a quote from the article. The Mavericks have decided to resign rather than face the humiliation of being expelled. Mr. Maverick, a 65-year-old retired travel agent and a primary school governor, said... I simply could not agree to do it because it's against my central beliefs. We've never discriminated against anybody, but I cannot preach the benefits of homosexuality when I believe that it's against the word of God. Mrs. Matherick uh, said that they had asked 
if they could continue looking after their foster son until he found a permanent home, but officials refused, and he will be placed in a council hostel. He was very upset. This is about their, their foster child. He was very upset to begin with, and we are all very close, but he's a mature young man, and he's dealing with it. Now, assuming this is accurate, this is a case where perhaps they have crossed that line, but <laughs> maybe you guys feel differently, and I'm, I'm wondering, is this, is this appropriate? Is this a free speech issue, or is this another case where, look, no, this is the government foster care service that they have, and the government has an interest in promoting a certain uh, social ethic, I guess you could right. say, of tolerance and equality. I don't think we're, uh, we're doing that here in America, but I bring it up because I've, I, I've noticed that in America, a lot of secular humanists, a lot of free thinkers, a lot of atheists are very, very protective of the First Amendment, very protective of church-state separation, and we're very willing to defend even the, the civil rights of others, even when we, we don't agree with them. And I have noticed at different, I went to an American Humanist Association conference and saw this and listening to European freethinkers, mm-hmm. I've noticed that they're much more willing generally to cross lines that I think American secularists are not comfortable with. They're much more willing to, for example, forbid the wearing of religious jewelry and right. headscarves right. in France. They're much more willing to step in and regulate aspects of religion. Right, and there's and free speech, too. In Germany, it's illegal to publicly doubt the Holocaust, right. um, which I think is definitely going too far. Um, I think, I, I believe in free speech, like the ACLU, who mm-hmm. will um, support the KKK as often as they'll support us heathens, it's important that everyone has the right to free speech and hate speech is the speech that we need to defend because love speech isn't going to get shut down. Um, this this is a tricky one, though, because, like you said, it is the foster care system, and they, they're saying, we're letting you uh, watch this child, but these are the rules that we want you to abide by. Right. Uh, this is the system in place. Now, is it a good system? I think it wouldn't seem as morally ambiguous if this was if we applied this to racial perspectives. Right. If we applied and this to racism and required that foster, that we knew that the foster care parents were not promoting mm-hmm. racial discrimination and might even want to see signs that they are actively promoting. Uh, uh, encounters with diversity amongst sure. their children, that would make a little bit more sense. But it does kind of, it, it, is, it does clash with our emphasis in this country on freedom of conscience. Mm-hmm. It does clash with our idea that the government should not be involved in any sort of philosophy promoting some particular worldview. Whereas in Europe, it's, it's much more acknowledged that no, there, are, there are areas of public morality Right. That we, uh, um, you, you cannot have a legal system. You cannot have a government that does not have some sort of ideological base to it. And so perhaps it's, uh, in some cases, it's important to provide, to promote a certain type of public morality outside of people's private morality. But then, you know, that's a whole other tangle of ethical issues. How far is too far? 
Right, right. And and you certainly, <clears throat> I mean, with the racism thing, yes, I, I think that's true. But you also wouldn't say that you have to promote uh, religious diversity by bringing the children to a mosque and to a Catholic church and to uh, a, I think a Jewish temple. I think you could on the same you, rationale. You could. It, yeah, I, well, you could, but they're not. I don't not. know if you should. <laughs> um, I don't know if you should either, and that's... That's where it becomes tricky because if this does go against their beliefs, and frankly, these people are in their 60s. They shouldn't <laughs> be watching 10-year-olds anymore. It's time to relax. They've had 30 kids um, that they've fostered over the years, according well, to this article. Well, I wanted to bring that up just to, just to be fair. Uh, I don't think this at all applies to what's going on in California as that this is around the corner. But, uh, but it is important mm-hmm. every once in a while to take a step back. And to and to look at how the government uh, gets involved in issues of ideology and I- issues of philosophy. Neutrality certainly is good. Protecting people who are of minority opinions and uh, of minority se- sexual orientation, minority race, minority religion, whatever, is good. Proactively promoting, positively affirming different ideas mm-hmm. enters into a new ethical arena. They're concerned that that's what's going to happen with this legislation, but I see no reason why that will directly follow. And the other thing is, these are foster children. These are not. This is not a law. No, this is not their personal children. children. This is. They're not saying all parents have to, under uh, punishment of death, have (laughs) to instruct their children that homosexuality is an acceptable lifestyle. It's foster children. These are wards of the state. There, as opposed to California, where it's public education, and they're not. Right. Act, there's not the positive aspect. It's just non-discrimination. Still on the issue of uh, homosexuality, tolerance, and intolerance, we now have a counter-apologetics segment about the same issue. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Yes, this is also from the unending font of happiness, the Christian Newswire. The Christian Newswire has uh, additional information for for people uh, on the homosexuality and children issue. This is, uh, they refer people to a psychologist column Love Isn't Enough, Five Reasons Why Same-Sex Marriage Will Harm Children by Dr. Trace Hansen, Ph.D. Uh, If you read this information, it's actually very similar to what the the releases from Focus on the Family and their research arm, the Family Research Council, where they have psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers that that claim to give scientifically-based reasons why uh, homosexuality is dangerous and harmful to children, and it's a deviant lifestyle. This particular column by Dr. Hansen, I'll just read an excerpt here. All else being equal, children do best when raised by a married mother and father. It's within this environment that children are most likely to be exposed by, to the emotional and psychological experiences they need in order to thrive. So her five reasons are, I can quickly summarize, mother love and father love, though equally important, are qualitatively different. <laughs> so apparently you need both mother and father love, and they're different, uh, to have a, a healthy attachment. Uh, and, obviously, only heterosexual parents offer the children the opportunity to develop the relationships with a parent of the same as well as opposite sex. 
uh, and then you need a relationship with the other opposite sex parent. Different stages in development require mothers, some require a father. For example, during infancy, babies of both sexes tend to do better in the care of their mother. Perhaps that has something to do with the mother having breasts. <laughs> uh, that, that lactate. Um, and then uh, she goes on to say the father teaches, you know, a boy how to channel his aggression, the typical things like that. Uh, what you see from this, though, is that uh, clearly she is um, equating then healthy child development with these standard gender roles and the sex roles. When you look at this, uh, as with other focus on the family and family research council material, there's no citations or references, and often this is not based on any scientific information. What's curious is that much of this is based on neo-Freudian attachment theory, so that you have um, information uh, coming from psychologists and analysts that aren't, these aren't scientific studies. This is something that's, you know, that's in the same realm as penis envy or womb envy <laughs> or uh, f concepts where you need, you know, the father has to scare the son with castration anxiety. <laughs> so I kind of wish I had a womb. It would be a neat thing to have. I mean, just to, to look at and display. <laughs> well, not to... Not to crib Monty Python, but where's the fetus going to gestate? Are you going to keep it in a box? <laughs> keep it in a box? So uh, this type of thing, I think, is very dangerous in that when somebody reads this, um, they are seeing this as having a professional, uh, a professional light to it. Like, it's a psychologist that's saying that. Most lay people don't know to challenge this information. They're passing off, essentially, opinion uh, under the heading of its... Just uh, gospel science. knowledge here. It's science. Argument from authority, mm -hmm. same thing. Absolutely. Uh, and it goes without saying that the major psychological uh, research bodies, the American Psychological Association, repudiate all this information, and their stance is that there is nothing that indicates a child needs a mother and a father married uh, to have uh, development. The other interesting thing is when they do cite studies showing that, oh, when a gay parent uh, has a child that it's maladjusted, they're not comparing, uh, uh, making the proper comparison. It's a comparison of often two-parent intact families with a single divorced parent raising a kid alone, and then they assume the person makes the link, oh, it's because they're gay. No. When you compare two intact heterosexual parents with two intact homosexual parents, there's no difference in the so mental health of the children. we do have, we have data then. Absolutely, and and uh, and there's and this this data is is available in professional peer-reviewed journals that shows that when you uh, control for things like socioeconomic status and like I mentioned before, the status of the the, the marriage, like single parent families that are, let's say, a mom got divorced, raising the kid herself with the same situation, but the parent's gay, there's no difference in the child's health. Mm -hmm. So what appears to be the, the true is that yes, two intact parents are often often produce slight benefits in the mental health of children, but for obvious reasons of things like it's economic or the divorce itself right, or right. the relationship or those type of factors. So if they wanted to be really honest about it, what these Christian groups should do is take on single parents. Let's right. take children away from divorced mothers who have or who are raising kids themselves. Well, obviously, they're not going to do that out of political expediency. Right. But it's dishonest to suggest that it's because of the homosexuality. And the other claim they often make is that it, uh, if, you, if children are raised by gay parents, they're going to make the kids gay. And again, there's no evidence that's no. the case. There's studies, uh, for example, there's a study by Tasker and Gollenbach. They actually had uh, children of uh, heterosexual and homosexual parents, and they found that uh, almost all of them grew up to be heterosexual, like the general population. There's all kinds of studies that, that repudiate that children of gay parents turn out to be gay more. It's the quality of the attachment with the parent. 
Mm-hmm. Gay right. or straight, as long as the parent is a caring, loving parent, it doesn't matter what orientation they are. The children tend to grow up more healthy when you have a good attachment. Uh, the other issue is, uh, and again, this is not scientific, but I just think it's amusing to point out where are all the uh, gay kids coming from now who are raised by <laughs> conservative Christian parents? Mm. Where did Mary Cheney come from? Yeah. How about Alan Key's daughter? The Alan Keyes is a conservative uh, commentator. Alan Keyes has a gay daughter? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Barry yeah, Goldwater's that's grandson. probably something they don't talk about. All yeah, that. I can't imagine. Randall Terry from Operation Rescue, the anti-abortion group. His adopted son is also gay. There's a, there's a, yeah. Actually, I don't know about any scientific way to anal- uh, analyze this, but it appears to be actually increased risk that you're gay <laughs> if yeah. you have a conservative Christian parent. Larry Craig's parents were both straight, so... Hmm. <laughs> okay. They well, taught him how to use a white stand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We, uh, they taught him how to use a wire. Which, by the way, is the most counterproductive way to go to the bathroom I can imagine. <laughs> I just, th- that whole stuff yeah. just boggles yeah, my mind. I, I Son, when that. you sit in a stall, you own that stall. <laughs> <laughs> Spread them open wide. Uh, yeah, of course. you got to get a good airflow going through the porcelain, the cooling of the water, you know, and it, it's, it's ventilation concerns. Everybody's, well, I don't see why everybody's getting on this guy. No, no. We're going to do a brand new segment that we've never tried on the show before, the Skeptic Sunday School. So Skeptic Sunday School is about teaching you things from the Bible, about religion and history, the things that you wouldn't have ever learned in church. Uh, and things you wouldn't learn in church for very good reason, because they are things that the clergy and theologians and apologists don't exactly want you to know about. Sometimes we're just going to look at the verses themselves and let them speak for themselves in a very fundamentalist, friendly fashion. Other times we're going to incorporate insights from biblical criticism, all types of biblical scholarship insights from history, insights from archaeology, and religious commentary of ancient times to help inform us about some of the things that holy texts are actually telling us. Today we're going to begin with a story that you probably are familiar with in Genesis 22. This, of course, is the story of Abraham and his devotion to God being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. I'll briefly read a passage from Genesis 22. God tested Abraham. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. When they had come to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took his knife to kill his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. And he said, Do not lay your hand upon the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Clearly, Abraham doesn't actually go through with the sacrifice. Rather, he's rewarded for being willing to have gone through with it as a devotion to God. In fact, unique among a lot of Old Testament passages, 
This one actually has a nice little interpretation stuck in it for you. It actually says in the beginning of the text that God did this to test Abraham, which we don't always have the benefit of those types of interpretations provided for us. Although the Christian tradition sees this as an allegory for Christ, the Jewish community, clearly throughout its history, actually had some serious problems with this passage, mm -hmm. as is evidenced by a lot of apocryphal works and commentary which tried to explain what was really going on here. Perhaps Isaac offered himself as a willing sacrifice. Perhaps it was not God at all that told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Perhaps it was the devil and all sorts of other interpretations. The interpretation that doesn't seem at all plausible to me is the idea that this passage is here in the Bible to instruct us as to why the Hebrews did not practice child sacrifice. It'd be very odd to frame it in that way because the entire point of the story is asking Abraham child to sacrifice. offer a child sacrifice. Hmm. And Abraham is willing to do so. So I briefly wanted to talk about, on our Skeptics Sunday School, what is the role of child sacrifice, but human sacrifice more generally in the Bible? And I wanted to walk you through some interesting verses about the subject. First of all, there was a God in the area known to the ancient Israelites that did require child sacrifice and required it regularly. This was the detestable god Molech. Followers of Molech would often offer their children as burnt sacrifices, similar to Abraham, but they would actually go through with the process. And several kings are condemned in, in the Hebrew Bible for offering their children to Molech. In fact, Leviticus punishes offerings child sacrifices to given to Molech on penalty of death. But what's interesting is not all verses tend to say the same story. And I wanted to point out one particular one. In Jeremiah 19 verse 5, God speaking through the prophet says, they built high places to Baal to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them nor did it ever enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Here we have Yahweh showing surprise that people are offering sacrifices to Molech, saying, though I did not command them to do it, which seems very odd since they're not offering the sacrifice to Yahweh at all. But in fact, he's very clear and very specific that not only did he not command such things, he wants to clarify that such a thing could have never even entered into his mind. Methinks he doth protest too much. And when we turn to other books in the Bible, we have startling evidence that, in fact, child uh, sacrifice may indeed have been practiced. For example, in Exodus 22, 28 through 29, it says, You shall not revile God or curse a leader of your people, you shall not delay to make offerings from the fullness of your harvest, from the outflow uh, of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. In the context of sacrifice, it seems to be offering your firstborn child. 
as, as an appropriate sacrifice to God. Now, it's not until an entire chapter and uh, several, it's not until 10 chapters and several verses later that we see this particular verse amended in any sort of fashion in the book of Exodus. Exodus 34, 19 through 20 says that all that first opens the womb is mine. All your male livestock, the first of your cow and sheep, the first of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All of the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. No one shall appear before me empty-handed. So it seems to imply that you, you can substitute a particular animal sacrifice for your, for your firstborn son. Uh, thus negating Exodus 22 or showing that it's, it's not necessary. If you want to swap it out with a, uh, with a particular animal, you can. Uh, in fact, you even should. You're required to. But this is odd to see this just showing up several chapters later. Many of the polemics against child's uh, sacrifice in the Bible might actually, and, and verses such as these, might show a difference of opinion. Perhaps some ancient Hebrews felt that child sacrifice was part of appropriate worship of Yahweh. All of this, of course, is very circumstantial, comparing verses that none of them blatantly command uh, sacrifice, and many of them specifically speak against it. But we do have a very interesting verse uh, that's been preserved for us, in Ezekiel 20, 25 through 26, that is not at all ambiguous. Here, again, God speaking through the prophet says, Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good ordinances, by which they could not live. I defiled them through their very gifts, in their offering up of all their firstborn, in order that I might horrify them, so that they may know that I am the Lord. In this passage, God happens to be speaking about the Israelites when they were wandering through the wilderness, which is also whom the verses in Exodus allegedly are speaking to as well. From looking at the prophet Ezekiel, we get the sense that he was not aware of these verses in Exodus that allowed for a substitute, that allowed you to use an animal uh, in place of a child's sacrifice. He seems to think that God did ask for the firstborn children, that this was to horrify the people. And in fact, we can turn to several stories in the Bible that would actually make that interpretation a lot more sense. For example, we have the story of Jepeth. Jepeth agrees to sacrifice the first person of his household that what meets him at the door when right. he returns for battle. And surprise of surprises, yes. his daughter runs out to greet him. Yeah. And uh, they're very upset by this. Jepeth realizes he's made a mistake and allows her to go off into the wilderness to mourn her virginity, which was <laughs> apparently very important back then, uh, instead of letting her get laid, which <laughs> seems to me like the natural choice. Mm -hmm. um, but at no point is it ever implied that God didn't want this sacrifice, and in fact, they show their commitment and devotion by going through with it. Now, many apologists, of course, blame Jepeth for making such a rash 
uh, commitment to God. But what in the world would possess him to do that anyways? And why would they follow through with it and portray following through with it as being a good thing, as a required act of devotion? Well, anyways, regardless of whether or not the ancient Hebrews did practice child sacrifice, there's no doubt that they did practice human sacrifice. If you look at the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 20, 16, verses 16 and 17, But as for the towns of these people that the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them. Or in Joshua 6, 21, they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkey. Which is just a waste of cattle. Yeah, they, uh, they actually left the trees, though. They spared oh, the trees. Wow. They were concerned about the natural resources, um, mm. which, which makes sense. Sure. Um, but this is referring to a practice that uh, is known as harem, or also referred to as the ban. It's required in biblical holy war within the borders of the promised land that God has promised to the ancient Israelites. Everything has to be killed. What is so interesting about harem is that in harem, victims are, quote, dedicated to the Lord, which is the same phrase that is used whenever a ritual act of sacrifice is being made. It's implied that harem is a form of sacrifice. It's a ritual act. It's meant to purify and make atonement for the Israelites. And we see in several other areas of the Bible, such as in Numbers 25 with the high priest Eliezer, you can read that one yourself, that there are many cases where killing another human being is an act of atonement for the nation. Harem is so important in the Bible that if you violate harem, if you do not kill all the men, women, children, elderly, oxen, and everything else, that God, uh, that this will bring upon curses upon the Israelites, as in Joshua in the Battle of Ai, when the Israelites lose several warriors because one of their citizens has kept possessions for himself and broke the covenant. Uh, it's so serious that he's done this that he and his entire family are executed. So, regardless of whether or not the Bible endorses child sacrifice, or at one point whether or not the Hebrews did practice child sacrifice, there's no doubt that the practice of human sacrifice has a central place in Old Testament theology. So, a little food for thought on the Skeptic Sunday School. It's that time of the week again where we give praise to those that deserve it and we heap scorn upon those who deserve scorn. It's time to see who has made the shit list this week. I'm actually giving props 
This time, uh, instead of putting these people on my shit list, I'm giving props to the pro-life group Silent Solidarity. You can check out their website at www.silentday.org. They organize protests, student protests on campuses nationwide in the United States and Canada and in several other countries. These might be the kids that you've seen in your own community, maybe. They like to take duct tape, red duct tape, and either use it as an armband or the, the more devoted ones, like to place the tape across their mouths often with the words life mm-hmm. written on the tape. As featured in the movie Jesus Camp. As featured in the movie Jesus Camp, yes. Uh, to try to give a voice or represent the, the voices that have been silenced through abortion. Why am I giving them props? Um, because this is finally a method of protesting abortion that I thoroughly agree with. Every day can be Silent Solidarity Day if you're willing for it to be Silent Solidarity Day. You don't have to take the tape off. Please do keep the tape on your mouths. Amen. (laughs) All right, and on the shit list this week, we have a teacher who is himself not on the shit list, but rather Southwestern Community College, Iowa or Nebraska? I think it's Nebraska. I'm going to say I'm Iowa. from Nebraska, and there's really little distinction between that and <laughs> Iowa. So. All right. We have the good people at the Southwestern Community College in, we'll say, Iowa. A teacher, Steve Bitterman, who I believe is an adjunct professor because he was only teaching one course at the college, was fired because, as he says, because he told his students that the account of creation in Genesis is not to be taken literally. Now, the school has said that that's not why he was fired, and uh, the president, Barbara Chittenden, Chittenden? Chittenden? Boy, who knows? (laughs) Barbara Chittenden has said, I can assure you that the college understands our employees' free speech rights. There was no action taken that violated the First Amendment. So I guess I guess we don't have necessarily the full story here, but how he explains it. Yes. Um, he says that, quote, I put the Hebrew religion on the same plane as any other. Their God wasn't any more credible than any other God. I told them it was an extremely meaningful story, but you had to see it in a poetic, metaphoric, or symbolic sense, that if you took it literally that you are going to miss a whole lot of meaning there. He also told his students in a conversation after class that the story of Adam and Eve was a fairy tale. Now, he was fired shortly after that. He's putting two and two together and coming up with, this is the reason why I was fired. Apparently, students complained about it. Um, And my favorite quote of his, uh, talking about this whole, uh, as he sees it, censorship issue, Quote, from my point of view, what they're doing is essentially teaching their students very well to function in the 8th century. Uh, One of the other teachers, uh, an atheist religion professor, as the Des Moines Registrar um, points out, says that, quote, I don't know the circumstances, but if he's teaching something about the Bible and says it is a myth, he shouldn't be fired for that because most academic scholars do believe this is a myth, the story of Adam and Eve. 
and I would uh, I would second that motion. In fact, yeah. no, there's no. Um, if you look, and I have, if you look at a lot of the textbooks that mm -hmm. are there for students when taking a Bible as literature course, they use words like myth. They use words like cult and these other words all the time. Those are the terms that historians and biblical critics use. It's not meant in a pejorative sense. It's not said to say these are pitiful superstitions that right. people believe in. It's, it's meant simply to affirm that, no, these, these stories have a mythic character. They have talking animals. They are not designed to be literal histories. They seem to be focusing on some particular moral or an etiology. Where does some phenomena come from? Why does the snake not have legs and these sorts right. of things? And these are not radical textbooks either. That's just how the dialogue around these issues has to be if you're looking at them sensibly, if you're not teaching, if you're not promoting a literalist dogma. Right. As uh, the Professor Steve Bitterman says, I'm just a little bit shocked myself that a college in good standing would back up students who insist that people who have been through college and have a master's degree, a couple actually, have to teach that there were such things as talking snakes or lose their job. I guess this is an argument for the concept of tenure. Always make sure <laughs> that you have tenure before you start criticizing talking snakes. I think we can all agree with that. First of all, we don't want to, we're getting this from one guy's perspective. The right. other people refuse to comment, so we don't know what went on. Maybe this was the tip of the iceberg of something much more serious. And maybe Luke can inform me on this, but as an, as an adjunct, as a part-time, do they need to give much of a reason why? No, that's why you're an adjunct. Right. You have no right. You're basically like the uh, a concubine in the Bible. You yeah. have no rights and the no <laughs> appeal process. You can be cast off. Yeah. So and basically, they can screw you anytime they want to. Is what I wasn't going to say that part, but yes. yes. Basically, if you get the uh, the person on the wrong day and some students are complaining, that's they, they don't need to give him another word. The article even said that they fired him over the phone. Right. So we don't really have much of a reason to doubt his story either. Given the silence on the other end, there's no suggestion of, yeah. no, there was, there was some other reason. The president doesn't say we've had other complaints, anything like that. So given the opportunity to defend themselves, the school yeah. has done a pretty poor job of it. So, well, okay, we need to keep our critical thinking caps on, but it's certainly possible that that did happen, and if it did, it's incredibly disturbing about our educational system higher educational system. That blows my mind. Well, that's going to be a wrap for today's episode. Please make sure that you check out our website. It's www.doubtreligion.blogspot.com. We're just getting this show off the ground. We would really like your support. If you can, please get on iTunes and write a review if you like this show. We're trying to spread the word. We're not doing this for any profit or anything else but a cause. Comments and questions are always welcome. Yes. In fact, the more outlandish and flagrant they are, the more likely we are to put you on the Absolutely. air. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's right. So please, send us your challenges, too. We want, to, uh, we want to hear from people who disagree with us. We want a chance for you guys to enter into the debate. So enjoy, and until next week.
For episodes, links, or to email us your comments, go to www.doubtreligion.blogspot.com. Apple Tree is produced by Grand Rapids' very own Love Fossil and is used with permission. 